It's called Be Still My Soul. And the first verse says, Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide in every change. He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Wow. You've got a best friend. It's your Father in heaven. (laughs) I don't know what difficulties you're facing. Whatever grief or pain, he faithful will remain. And uh, today we're, we're going into uh, the next part of our series, Dealing with Difficulties. And uh, the reality is that each one of us deals with this on some level, at some point in our lives. Maybe it's not now. Maybe your path is all bright and sunshiny, you know? Maybe it's Central Valley weather. <laughs> but maybe your path is flooded. Maybe you're not even sure where your next step is going to be. I don't know what your situation is, but as you deal with difficulties, God is by your side. We can be still. Today, we want to study a little bit more. Last week, we saw that there are three realities. We saw the source of our difficulties founded in a mistrust of who God is. We saw the schemes of the enemy, and we also saw God's solution. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, before exiting Adam and Eve out of the garden, God clothed them. God covered the ways in which they felt exposed, and he clothed them with animal skins, which meant that he was pointing them to the atonement. He was pointing them to the cross that through the blood of Jesus, we are clothed through whatever difficulty we travel. And today, what we're looking at is a little bit more about what's going on behind the scenes. When we experience difficulties, I don't know about you, but maybe your natural reaction is just to come out swinging. But But when you experience difficulties, maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something behind the scenes. And that's what we want to look at today. What is going on behind the scenes? And how does that dictate our response? Our response to the difficulties we face in life. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, we want to be still and know not just that you are God, but to know that you are the God who is on our side. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are storms a-brewing even now within our hearts and minds, that you would still the anxieties long enough for us to hear from you. We want your word, because your word is life. So please, speak to us, equip us, instruct us for every good work, God. We pray that you would truly speak through your word. Send us your Holy Spirit, because it's only he that can guide us into all truth. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with me in your Bibles, if you've got one, uh, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to a very famous or familiar parable in Matthew chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's probably a Bible in the pew in front of you. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to this parable that is commonly called the parable of the wheat and the, does anybody know? Yeah, that's it, parable of the wheat and the tares. This is just going to begin our study. If you're taking notes, go ahead and take out a pen. We, for the sake of time, probably won't be able to go through every single Bible text that we intended to go through today. But uh, you can take notes and make sure that in your time alone you can chew on those verses of Scripture. So we are in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. When you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. Amen. All right. 
Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus is putting out a parable, which means it's a story about practical things that has spiritual meaning. All right? A story about practical things that has spiritual meaning, and it says in verse 24, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what kind of seed in his field? Good seed. Okay, so here's a farmer. He has good intentions, so he sows good seed in his field. Verse 25, the plot thickens. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Ah, verse 26, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Have you ever asked this question? Maybe it's not when you're farming for this or for that, but you think to yourself, God, didn't, aren't you the good God who made a good world, who has good intentions for me? Where in the world did all this junk come from? <laughs> Where in the world did all of this trouble, all of this struggle, all of this pain come from? It's a question that even back then people were asking. And in verse 28, notice the, the, the farmer's response. In verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. Five words of of deep significance. An enemy has done this. In this parable, this farmer is actually a representation of God himself. You actually look a few verses later down to verse 36, the disciples actually ask Jesus, hey, explain to us this parable about the wheat and the tares. And in verse 37, he begins to give them the key for understanding this. He says, in verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is who? It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus, okay? The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And in verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. What I want to do in this study is just kind of pull back a little bit to realize that the things that we see, the wheat and the weeds, the things that we see in our observable world are actually interrelated to the things in the unseen world. There's actually a spiritual conflict. You might even call it a great controversy between God and his enemy. And this enemy has come in while men slept, unbeknownst to human eyes. This enemy has come in to sow weeds amongst that which God intended to be good. And so often, God gets the blame. What, what did you do wrong? <laughs> did you just goof royally? Did you mess up big time? No, an enemy, an enemy has done this. Oftentimes, God is blamed, or at least he's misunderstood. But in truth, the enemy has done this. Write this one down, John chapter 10, verse 10. John chapter 10, verse 10. You probably already know this by memory. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Who, who do you think Jesus is talking about there? Yeah, the devil, the enemy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Then he contrasts that in the very next phrase. But I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We've got to understand, in truth, God is fully intended on giving us life and life more abundantly. A lot of times we look at these difficulties around us and we think to ourselves, what is God doing? 
what is God doing? God's wanting to give you life. And if we really believe John 10, 10 for what it is, it's the thief that comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But God wants to give us life. This spiritual war, this cosmic conflict, it's in so many places in Scripture. You think about the story of Job. How many of you have heard the story of Job, right? A, a very well-off man. Uh, you find his story in Job verses one, or excuse me, chapters 1 through 40. There's this huge experience where, where he is experiencing disaster after disaster, where he loses uh, not just property, but he loses the life of his loved ones. And then eventually he loses his health. And all the while, his friends are asking, hey, what's going on here? Job is thinking to himself, God, what are you up to? His friends are saying, Job, what are you up to? What did you do? Back in that time, back in that time, there was this assumption that if you were experiencing suffering, it was because God was rejecting you. If you were experiencing pain, it was because you had somehow displeased God. And so these friends were kind of perpetuating that worldview. And Job is saying, no, 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 no. It's not my fault. And when Job is asking God, what are you doing? Ultimately, it's not God's fault either. That whole book, it starts off with this scenario where the enemy, the adversary, Satan, actually comes and asks God, hey, this guy, Job, he only follows you because you bless him. Watch what happens when I curse him. And so what does God do? He allows Satan to, to go ahead and pull back. And, and Satan actually causes all of this disaster to come upon him. This is all demonstrating the fact that sometimes the disaster, the difficulties that we experience in our life, it's not necessarily my choice, nor is it necessarily God's choice, but it's the enemy's hand to kind of tinker and throw monkey wrenches into the whole mix. Are we following today? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? There is a spiritual warfare behind these difficulties. In fact, go with me to Luke. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, it, it, it gets even more pointed about how this spiritual warfare impacts our physical, material experience. Luke chapter 13. So if you're in Matthew, just go two books to the right, and you'll find Luke. The book of Luke chapter 13. And when you found it, say, I'm there. Okay, Luke chapter 13. And in this story, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And when you come down to verse 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, verse 11, there was a woman who had a spirit of what? Infirmity. The word there is weakness, fragility, a spirit of infirmity, 18 years was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called, to her he, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. It's very interesting to me that here the Gospel writer Luke says it's a spirit of infirmity. That there's a spiritual dynamic behind the physical incapacity. In fact, later on, when, when Jesus is, is kind of being confronted for healing on the Sabbath, in verse 15 it says, The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has done what? Has bound. Think of it. For 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Are you seeing the connection? 
that Jesus recognizes there is a spiritual war behind the physical, observable difficulties we experience. Now, does this mean, does this mean that everything that we see here is either done by God or the devil? Does this mean that, that we can demonize every observable life event and occurrence? I, I wouldn't necessarily take it to that unhealthy extreme. And don't get me wrong, I want to be uh, clearly understood about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Because there are, I, would, I do want to caution against the extremes of seeing the spiritual dynamics at play. To pin every circumstance and event upon the direct activity of the spiritual enemy may be an oversimplification. Do you follow what I mean by that? Because this, the, the truth is that humanity still has the ability to exercise free will. All right? Each one of us still has the ability to exercise free will, and oftentimes our rebellious choices generate destructive consequences. Okay? You know, I may drink myself to a drunken stupor, and I pray the Lord that that would never ever happen. But if because of my rebellious choice, I make poor judgments on the road, and I hurt someone else, did the devil cause that accident? No. Do you, do you understand there's a free will behind that that results in a rebellious and destructive consequence? However, is there still a spiritual dynamic involved there? And I would say even then, yes. Whether or not directly responsible for every life circumstance or unfortunate event, there are st still spiritual forces at play to influence how we respond to those occurrences. Did you catch that? Even if person A is responsible for event A, there still may be a spiritual dynamic involved to the extent that the devil is wanting us to respond this way to that event while God is wanting us to respond another way to that event. When it comes to dealing with difficulties, let me just say this. When it comes to dealing with difficulties, the Bible does not spend very much time explaining or describing the reasons for our difficulties as much as it describes the appropriate responses to our difficulties. The Bible doesn't invest as much effort in explaining the reasons for our difficulties as it tries to show the appropriate responses to our difficulties. So when we are faced with struggle, when we are faced with hardship, maybe we should spend less time asking why and more time asking what now. Amen? Amen. Here's the trick. Well, not the trick, but here's the, the trouble with asking why. We will not often come up with a very good answer. Why did I lose my loved one to cancer? Friends, that doesn't have a very good answer to it. But if we persist in asking why and neglect to ask what now, then we will never move forward in the direction God wants us to move. We might continue to rest and wrestle with doubt and depression. So maybe we should spend less time asking why and more time asking what now. We will have an eternity way beyond the blue to ask why. Amen? And God, God knows how to make all things clear in its time. But I would just want to, to recognize that because the Bible invests more time explaining how we should respond and less time with the reasons, then maybe in our study today we can look at that. How can we appropriately then respond? 
How can we respond to this reality of spiritual warfare? Because the truth is, I'll be honest, when I read things like Revelation chapter 12, and there's a dragon who is chasing the woman, and you know the, the dragon has all this evil intent for God's people all throughout history, and praise God, God delivers his people every time. Amen. But when I look at that, it's very easy for us to kind of feel like little pawns in a cosmic chess game that are just being moved around here and there, and we feel helpless victims. But if we focus not necessarily just on the reasons of all of these things, but on the response, then we realize we don't have to be helpless victims, but we can be powerful victors in this, in this cosmic conflict. So what then is the Bible's prescribed response for dealing with difficulty? How then should we appropriately respond to our struggles, to our hardships? We may not be able to explain every difficulty, but we can engage them properly. And so, for the next few moments here, we're going to look at two rules of engagement, okay? (laughs) Two rules of engagement for spiritual warfare, not necessarily to say that we are the generals in this spiritual warfare, but to know how we ought to respond and how we ought not to respond. So, rule of engagement number one, are you taking notes? Rule of engagement number one is this, trust the heavenly assurance, excuse me, trust the heavenly assurance of victory. Trust heavenly assurance of victory. What do I mean by that? Go with me to an Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. It's a little more than halfway through your Bible. After the Psalms and then the Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Isaiah 59. And I believe we're looking for verse... 19, Isaiah 59, verse 19. When you found it, say, I found it. Okay, if you're still looking, that's all right too. Help your neighbor out. This is Isaiah 59, verse 19. This is a promise of God to people who were experiencing great difficulty. To people who were wondering if the Lord was still on their side. Isaiah 59, verse 19, God's promise. It says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of who? The spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. What's lifting up a standard? That, that, yeah, that's a, that's a war army banner. All right, hey, the Lord's on the, on the prowl, okay? The Lord is on guard. He is going to fight your battles. You remember that story? Uh, the children of Israel, they had just been delivered from Egypt. They're, they're walking out in freedom. And eventually their path of freedom leads them to the shore of the Red Sea. And they're wondering, wait a minute, I thought the promised land was our destination, right? And they hear the hoofs of Pharaoh and his army behind them. And so here they are. They're stuck between literally a rock and a hard place. And and God's promise through through the prophet Moses says, hey, all you need to do is stand still. The Lord will fight for you. That's Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 to 14, if you want to write that one down. Powerful promise. This is the Lord's battle. Look, when we are fraught with difficulties, when we realize that spiritual warfare is heating up, we can trust the heavenly assurance of victory. Amen? (laughs) 
You know, one more text uh, just before we move from this. John chapter 16. Go to the New Testament again. John chapter 16, verse 33. If we really want to be, uh, be assured of the Lord's victory, it's, it's well worth being able to tuck these verses in your mind. Because I'll tell you what, when difficulties pop up, it's very easy. The natural heart will immediately get anxious. The natural heart will immediately get defensive and wonder what's going on and kind of lose a sense of direction and compass. But in John chapter 16, this is one of those anchor point promises that just kind of brings back your focus and says, no, 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 you can trust the heavenly assurance of victory. John 16, verse 33. When you're there, say amen. amen. John 16, verse 33. These are Jesus' words. And he's anticipating leaving his disciples. He's saying, look guys, you're going you're gonna to have trouble when I'm gone. But he says this in verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's no if there. You will have tribulation, but be of good. What? <laughs> be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. We can trust the heavenly assurance of victory. That's why over and over and over again, when you flip through the pages of Revelation, it says, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. Why? Because God has overcome. And if we're following him, then we're following the victor. His victory is my victory. We can trust the heavenly assurance of victory. And I, it always baffles me, that phrase, be of good cheer. We can be happy about that. <laughs> hey, you're going to have trouble, so be of good cheer. <laughs> Buck up, you're going to have more difficulty. <laughs> what, what, what's going on there? There's an, there's, this is another dynamic of being assured of victory, is that we can actually have joy in our difficulties. Did you know that? We can have joy. That, that, that may not make sense to you because, and here's why it, doesn't, it didn't make sense to me before, is because I equated joy with happiness. But joy is not the same as happiness. Joy is not the same as happiness. If you're writing this down, happiness is dependent on happenings. If this happening is good, then I'm happy. If this happening is bad, then I'm unhappy. But joy is based on Jesus. <laughs> if Jesus is there, I've got joy. If Jesus is not, wait, Jesus is always there. <laughs> I've got joy. Whether or not the happenings are happy or unhappy, I have Jesus and I've got joy. Huge difference, huge difference. And so in James chapter 1, verse 2, if you're writing that one down, James chapter 1, verse 2, he actually tells you, you can count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may stand perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Whoa! James is telling us that you can have joy. Why? Because that is actually working in you a more Christ-like character, a more godly trust. This is powerful. When we have this rule of engagement, number one, that we trust the heavenly assurance of victory, we don't have to come out swinging when difficulties arise. <laughs> when difficulties arise, may I suggest that instead of reacting, that we pause to reflect. Did you catch that? It's a practical takeaway. So if you're, if you're missing, okay. Bef when, when difficulties arise, let us make it our habit not just to react, 
but to pause to reflect. Reflect on what? Reflect on the fact that God is still God. (laughs) Be still. The Lord is on my side. Pause and reflect and to realize that God is still who he is and be still to ask, how do you want me to grow through this? We can trust the heavenly assurance of victory. We don't have to feel defeated or victimized every time difficulties arise. We can choose how we respond when we know that the Lord is on our side. Do you follow me today, yes or no? Yeah? I hope this is practical because I'm needing to hear this myself. Okay, here we go. Rule of engagement number one, trust the heavenly assurance of victory. Rule of engagement number two, you ready? Take up the heavenly arsenal for victory. Whoa, now the guys in this room are like, oh, all right, let's talk about this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, now I've, I've never been in physical combat or warfare. I know that there are some in this room who have. And that's serious business. Could it be that spiritual warfare is even more serious business? And if we would not expect you know, uh, uh, an army officer or a soldier of, of this or that, if we would not expect them to go out on the battlefield unarmed, why would we, why would we think for a second that we can handle spiritual warfare unarmed? We need to take up heavenly arsenal here. So what is that? What is that? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. New Testament. If you're in John, you go Acts, then Romans, then you'll find First and Second Corinthians, And then these little letters, I'm sorry, yeah, these little letters, Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and if you found it, say, I beat the pastor. Uh, Ooh, nice. Quick on the draw. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6. Okay. (laughs) Oh, nice. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We might revisit this chapter later on in our series. But for now, this will help us understand the heavenly arsenal that we have the privilege of taking up. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. When you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. Paul is wrapping up his powerful epistle. And he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in who? In the Lord and in the power of his might. Let me just stop right here. Okay. We can talk about arsenal. We can talk about armor in this spiritual warfare. But the power comes from the Lord. Please, don't get me wrong. When we talk about engaging spiritual warfare, the devil is too much for you. The devil is too much for me. The only way you and I can be strong is in the power of the Lord and in his might. Okay, going on in verse 11, notice the prescription. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles, it's only used one other time in scripture and it's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It has to do with cunning trickery. All right, the devil is no dummy at this. He's been doing this for millennia, okay? And the, the, the devil has schemes with which we are not fully familiar but it says in verse, t- in verse 11, we can put on the whole armor of God so we can stand against that. Praise God. He is provided. And in verse 12, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Sometimes we feel like that, right? <laughs> we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is really interesting because where it says wrestle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against you know, these spiritual dynamics. That's what we wrestle against. That Greek word wrestle is the only time it shows up in the New Testament. It has to do uh, with, when you read like, the Greek literature of that time period, it was used by Plato and other Greek writers to describe a two-man combat. That uh, It was more like grappling, the attempt to throw one this way or that way. And the, the, the contest would be decided, I, I think I wrote this down, the contest would be decided when the victor is able to hold the other down with his hand upon his neck. Whoa. <laughs> That's the kind of grappling we're up against. The enemy, remember, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There's no intention here. The enemy doesn't want to hold back any punches. And so this is serious business. This is, serious. This is life and death. But God has provided for us a heavenly arsenal and he's saying, take up the whole armor of God so we can stand against the wiles of the devil, the, the cunning trickery, the methodical intentionality of the enemy's schemes. If the enemy is going to be methodical and intentional, ought not we to be methodical and intentional? So what does Paul do? He begins to outline the whole armor of God. Verse 13, he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore having, your, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We'll slow down and look at each of these individually. In verse 16 it says, above all, taking the shield of what? Of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is a heavenly arsenal. This is your heavenly armor. He's, he's, uh, he's identified it in contrast to the wiles of the devil or in order to stand against the methodical trickery of the devil. And so when we look at each piece of the armor, we ought to be able to see, oh, if God is providing this armor, it's because he knows that the enemy has this scheme. If he's providing a belt of truth, guess what? It's because the enemy attacks our sense of truth and truthfulness. When difficulties arise, there will always be this temptation to say, okay, I just need to take matters into my own hand. Let me tell this. Let me say it like this. And we sacrifice our integrity. Has that ever happened? Maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> when difficulties arise, there is an attack against our sense of truth, honesty, and integrity. Sometimes... The devil will take different tactics. And with certain difficulties, he will not just attack our sense of truth, but our sense of righteousness. Our sense of moral character and Christ-likeness. When this difficulty happens, when that person does this to me, oh, where's the Christ-likeness in my response? Right? What? What's going on here? God is providing a breastplate of righteousness because he knows the enemy is attacking our righteousness. Are we following that today, yes or no? Yeah? See, the schemes of the devil are such, but the armor of God is greater. 
What else? There's a breast, excuse me, there's a belt of truth. There's a breastplate of righteousness. In verse 15, it says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Very interesting. That in the scheme of spiritual warfare, when the enemy attacks, when difficulties and hardship arise, there is at times an attack against our grasp of the gospel and our burden to share it with others. Have you ever noticed that when you're going through tough times, you don't want to move to bring the gospel to somebody else? Why would the enemy keep bombarding us with different attacks here and there? Why? So that he can keep us in one place. The gospel of peace is such that it can't be kept to ourselves. And the enemy would like to rob us of that. The enemy would like to halt the mission of God to spread and share the gospel of peace. And so he'll attack us with difficulty here, with hardship there, with a frustration or disappointment here. Maybe it's not attacking our moral integrity. Maybe it's not attacking our our characters and things like that. But it's taking up so much attention that I have no concern for brother A or brother B who is hurting over here. God has given us shoes, amen? (laughs) So that when the enemy tries to shoot shoot out our feet or our legs, whatever, God can keep us moving. The gospel is still on the move. What else? In verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. God is giving us faith because he knows that the enemy wants to attack our faith. The enemy, through these difficulties and hardships, whatever situation, I don't know, maybe you're already just kind of thinking about this dynamic that you've been struggling with and you're just trying to get off your back and you're realizing that just the the thought of those things, it's wearing away at your sense of confidence in God. God knows this. God knows that the enemy tries to wear away at our reliance upon him, and so God's saying, hey, take the shield of faith. Please, above all things, take that. Why? Because that's our first line of defense. If If we lose our confidence in God, then why would we keep the other pieces of the armor on? And so, He gives us the shield of faith, knowing that the enemy attacks our faith. What else? In verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. And it's very interesting that salvation would be upon our heads, the very seat of our thoughts and our judgments, that it would be guarded by a sense of God's salvation. Do you realize that in our sense of, or in our experience of hardships and trials, there are times where we begin to doubt Am I even saved? Does God even love me? Why would this be happening if God did love me? Friends, those are the questions that the enemy tries to, to plant and to place. These are the attacks against that experience of salvation. You see, in Romans chapter 8, flip there with me really quickly. Romans chapter 8, keep a finger here, Ephesians 6. But in Romans chapter 8, This is powerful. Romans chapter 8, this idea of principalities and powers and all this stuff that that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 6, he he mentions it also in Romans chapter 8, near the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse, uh, let's start in verse 35. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. When you're there, say amen. Amen. Oh man, this is so powerful. Let's, let's back up to verse 31. This is such a powerful passage. You need to highlight this if you don't have it already marked out or memorize it if you want to. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Ah, I love it. If God is for us, who can be? Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God gave us his son, don't you think he'll give you victory? If God gave us his son, don't you think he'll give you peace? If God gave us his son, don't you think he'll give you every provision that you need to navigate this difficulty and hardship? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? You see, it's, it's attacking our sense of salvation. It's attacking our sense of salvation. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Praise the Lord, right? You think you're, you think you're not going to be saved? Hey, it's harder not to be saved because Jesus is trying harder to save. <laughs> God, God is stronger than we are. Praise the Lord. Okay, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor what? Principalities, nor powers. The very things that, that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6. Those spiritual dynamics, those spiritual warfare. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize that the enemy is trying to attack your sense of the love of God? And that's why God wants to provide you with the helmet of salvation. For every scheme, for every wile of the devil, God has given us ample armor. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, a few more pieces of armor there. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then in verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? which is the word of God. In our difficulties, the enemy attacks our own handle of God's word. In our difficulties, the enemy would like to attack our understanding of the word, our belief in the word, but not just the intellectual things of the word, but our practical living of the word. And so what does God want us to do? He wants us to be supplied with the sword of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that in our difficult times, we, we, we open up our ears to almost any and every human voice of wisdom? Let me just take to Facebook with this. What does everybody think I should say? Have you ever noticed that in our difficulties, in our hardships, we look to other people. What's going on here? What should I do about this? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Take up the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And let the word of God be a light to your feet and a lamp unto your path. Let the word of God be the sword that, that cuts to the discerning of motives to help you understand what is going on here or how I should grow there. In your difficulties, sure, it's not to negate the value of companionship and human wisdom, but friends, don't let that replace the sword of the Spirit. 
So when the enemy attacks that, God says, no, 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 take this. <laughs> sort of the spirit. You've got the word of God. You've got the word of God. And finally, verse 18, praying always with how much prayer? Have you ever noticed that? With all prayer. There's a difference between prayer and all prayer. <laughs> I'm not sure what that difference is, but apparently in spiritual warfare, you're going to need it. You're going to need all prayer. All prayer at all times. Did you notice? Praying always. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. You know, sometimes we, we stop the list of the armor of God at the end of verse 17. But maybe, maybe prayer is another weapon in our arsenal. Why? Because the enemy is trying to attack that. The enemy understands that when, when he showers us with difficulties, the prayer connection with God is severed, or at least it's challenged. And so God says, hey, take up all prayer at all times. This is, this is the heavenly arsenal that we can take up. This is what, what we have the opportunity. When, when it comes to prayer, uh, you know, whether it's praying individually on my knees, not just about the difficulties, but praying through the difficulties. There's a difference there too. It's not just praying about it, but praying through it to be prayerful throughout your navigation of this hardship or that hardship. It also, notice how it says praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for who? For all the saints. So it's not just praying about your own difficulties, but being willing to pray about the difficulties of others. And that's something that I think the devil schemes when he throws hardships our way. He wants to make us feel as though we're an island and nobody else is going to care for me, myself, and I, and so I just need to pray here. But wait, maybe we ought to, to reach out to others to pray with us and for us. You remember when Daniel got a knock on his door? Late one night saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar's angry. He wants to kill all the, the wise men. What was Daniel's first response? He went to his friends and they prayed. Do you realize that in our difficulties, we, we can go to our friends and we can pray for one another. We can pray always with all prayer. These seasons of prayer that, you know, that we have here after the service on Sabbath, the seasons of prayer that we have on Wednesday nights, the seasons of prayer that, uh, that the global church is going through right now, uh, 7 p.m., 7 a.m., seven days a week. Have you heard of that, by the way? Yeah, the world church is encouraging people to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., seven days a week. Seven, seven, seven. It's kind of neat. Especially praying for the upcoming general conference session. Friends, there's need to pray. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for our church. Why? Because there's spiritual war going on. We can't take it for granted that these things will kind of work themselves out. No, there's spiritual war going on. Are we following today? Yes or no? Yeah. So rules of engagement, friends. What are the difficulties that you're faced with? What are the things that you are challenged with? Maybe you're still stuck in asking why. And maybe now we should ask what now, right? Maybe you're trying to look for reasons, but maybe God is encouraging you to say, what's your response? And so, in these rules of engagement, number one, take up the heavenly assurance of victory. Amen? Amen. Rule of engagement number two, take up the heavenly arsenal, the heavenly armor of God for victory. Maybe there's a piece of that armor that you realize that, that you've neglected or you realize is severely under attack 
and you want to make that your prayer focus throughout the week. Maybe there's something, a promise, that you just need to commit to memory throughout the week so that when those things arise, you can pause and not just react to the difficulties, but you can pause to reflect. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Maybe you're just looking, hey, I need some prayer warriors. I need people to, to, to cling to. I got a phone call earlier this week and somebody was just saying, hey, I need some prayer warriors. Friends, that's, that's a humble approach. That's, that's taking the rule of engagement for spiritual warfare saying, look, I, I can't do this on my own. We need to fight together. And so maybe, maybe some of you are experiencing difficulties right now and you, you actually do need special prayer. I want to invite you to the special prayer season here in the committee room right after the service. Or come out on Wednesday nights. House of prayer at 7 o'clock. Whatever the case might be, take up the heavenly assurance. Take up the heavenly armor. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are the God who is on our side. Lord, I pray for those who may be going through a heat of battle right now. I pray, Father, that as we kind of pull back the curtains and see the spiritual dynamics behind that, we would realize that you have made spiritual provision for us. Oh God, please, supply all that we need. You know what we need better than we do. I pray for those who are new in this journey, for those who are just baptized today. I pray for those who are seasoned in this journey. Lord, wherever we are, we are experiencing the bombardment of spiritual attack, and we pray. We pray for the assurance of victory. We pray for the army of victory. Thank you, Father, for making ample provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.